0: And and, uh, this morning, we want to tackle another part of that and speak specifically and look at this arena of sexuality and marriage. And as I began thinking about this subject in my own life experience, and, um, you know, I remembered for Christine and I, we had not been sexually active before we were married. We were pretty naive because in that time, um, in the homes we grew up in, it wasn't a topic of conversation at all. And even in our premarital counseling, it was never mentioned and so when we came to our, our wedding night, you know, for me, it was a little bit like a kid in a candy store, you know, you know, big ga- bag, go get as much candy as you want. And that's kind of what I was all excited or, you know, Christmas Day, you know, the, the what I've been waiting for, can't sleep, can't eat, you know, so excited. And my wife on the other side said it was a little bit like uh, some curiosity with a mixture of terror, you know, kind of like going bungee jumping, you know, you're standing at the edge, just, I'm scared to death. I don't know what I've gotten myself into, and I hope there's something good in this experience. But as we left the the wedding and headed for our hotel, I was ready for the party to begin. My wife, not so much, you know. And so she said, why don't we stop and get something to eat? And so... um, we managed to find a Burger King that was open late on a Saturday night, and I'm telling you, those were the worst burgers I've ever eaten in my entire life. They must have been sitting in that bin for four or five hours, you know. They were cardboard, and they were hard and dried out, And but like the good, dutiful husband I had just become, I ate my stale burger, you know, for my wife, and... We made it to the hotel room, and as we, I tried to put the key in again, and the key wouldn't work. And I'm like, Are you kidding me? You know, so I had to get someone from the front desk to come up and get the key to work. And this was feeling a lot more like uh, National Lampoons than, you know, my honeymoon that I had waited for to begin. And we had an early flight out, it was late at night, and all I know is we didn't get much sleep that night. That's all I know, you know. Um, but as we began that journey for us as a couple, um, and I look back on that, and I think, I don't know how we made it through all of that. But as we dive into this subject this morning, I do so recognizing, and I think it's important to speak into us, that there's so many different perspectives that are listening this morning. I mean, some of you are sitting there, you know, realizing, oh, that's right, he's going to talk about that again, and, and wait, you know, anxiously waiting for me to get done this series and go back to talking to something else in the Bible like righteousness or hell you know, instead of sex. You know, It's kind of what you would prefer. And so some of you are just kind of holding out till this is over. Um, for others of you, this subject brings up a lot of painful memories. Uh, there's things in your past. There's things in your mind. You hope no one finds out, and you hope can stay private and secret till we get through this. Um, others of you are trying to maintain a place of sexual purity in your life as we talked about last week when we looked at the subject of sex and singleness uh, you know some of you are trying to be content where you are and trying to balance this contentment and longing being being in that season of your life and for still others this subject just brings a lot of pain and guilt and shame And you don't quite know what to do with all of it. You know, the reality is that we are all sexual beings. Every single one of us. And we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And when you put those two things together, um, it's just a dangerous situation. Um, And so this morning I come to this subject recognizing that all of us Regardless of our story, when we think about this area of our sexuality, nearly all of us ache because of some sin that we know is true in our lives because of it. If you haven't been with us over these past few weeks, um, we've been trying to dive into this subject and look at what does God have to say about these issues. What does God have to say about the issues of You know, sexuality, His gift, the designer sex we talked about the first week, of it being passionate and yet sacred, somehow holy. And then last week we looked at the subject of sex and singleness and and talked about the fact that 20% of our church, and and that's going to continue to grow in the years to come, are at a place where they are not in a relationship, in a marriage relationship. Either never been married or no longer married. Um, And so what does God's Word say about that for them? If you haven't been here with us, I encourage you to go online, listen to those messages. Um, Our tech team just recently has uh, set it up so that you can go to the iTunes store and subscribe to, or uh, Google Play Music if you you use Android as a regular podcast. The messages will come to your phone to listen to as soon as they're posted on the web. But this morning we're going to dive into this issue of sexuality and marriage. And if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Ephesians chapter chapter 5, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning. If you don't have a Bible, our guys have some, and they'll make them available to you. Um, pages 949, if you don't have a Bible of your own, I encourage you to take this one with you and, and uh, just mark the passages and go back and read them sometime during this week. You can follow along on your phone or tablet as well. Ephesians chapter 5, page 949, the Bibles they're distributing. And so this morning we're going to look at two passages, and I was pretty intentional about the order in which I chose to look at them. The first passage is Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to start at the beginning of that chapter. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this He says, I want you to follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. He said, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He said, This is the pattern I want you to follow. And the pattern I want you to follow is the pattern that Jesus gave us of his love and of his sacrifice. He says he did it as a sacrifice to God. Of no benefit to him was his death on the cross, was him being willing to sacrifice his life for us. If you move down a little bit further to verse 21, he says this, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this idea of submitting is an idea that's pushed back hard in our culture because we're independent-minded and we want to do our own thing. And so the idea of submitting to someone else is really hard. Because sometimes we view submission as being forced into something that I don't want to do. But that's not what the Bible's talking about. talks about submission. It talks about submission as willingly placing yourself underneath of or behind in support of another person. The analogy I like to use is it's like in tug of war where someone says, I'll be on your team, I'll get behind you, and I'll pull with you. It's not a picture of that person being on the sideline saying, I don't think it's going to work. I hate to tell you, it's probably not going to work. And when you lose, I'm going to say, I told you so. That's not submission. Submission is also not getting on the other side and pulling on that rope. But submission also doesn't mean that you lose your voice. You don't have an opinion or a perspective. But you offer that and then you say, I'm willing to pull with you to make this happen. And before Paul ever says this to women, he says, you need to do this with one another. And I saw this definition recently that marriage should be two people out submitting and out sacrificing each other. Let me say that again. Marriage should be two people who are committed to outsubmitting and outsacrificing each other. For those of you a little competitive, you got that competitive urge, okay, you can kind of write this thing down, you know? This is what this is supposed to be about. Not demanding that of each other, but offering that to one another. Offering a submissive heart, offering a sacrifice saying, "How can I serve you?" What does it mean to submit? In submitting, you know each other's strengths, you defer to the other person, and you let them lead. Now for Christine and I, when when our kids have um, some responsibilities in school, if it's anything related to writing, my wife teaches writing, if it's anything related to writing, term papers or projects, she's the one that I will gladly defer to her to let her provide direction for them. If it's anything related to public speaking or presentations, then she gladly defers to me. And I step into that. Why? Because that's our strengths. You know, she manages our finances on a day-to-day basis. So if I have questions about finances or I need an opinion or perspective, I defer to her. I said, what do you think about this decision we have to make? If something needs to be taken care of at home or fixed or repaired, she will defer gladly to me in those areas. And so sometimes we defer to one another's strengths. And sometimes we say, you know what, I think on this one I'm going to let you lead. And that's what submission looks like. Sometimes together, sometimes her, sometimes me. And what I believe God wants to be the framework for marriage is those two things. I think what God wants the framework for marriage to be is a relationship of sacrifice and a relationship of submission to each other. And so he really says that's the ideal. That's the framework. Marriage is not just about who's going to take care of the dishes and the garbage, you know, and and who's responsible for the kids getting them where in this place and that place and, and, and the sexual element of marriage. It's not those elements. Those are part of the relationship. But at the foundational level is the issue of service and sacrifice and submission. Paul goes on to describe what this loving relationship specifically for husbands looks like in verse 25 look what he says he says husbands love your wives just as christ loved the church gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by washing her with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless i'm not going to spend a lot of time in this passage because that's another whole message or two but I want us just to sit with this for just a couple minutes and think about what Paul's talk what Paul's saying. He's saying guys I want you to love your wife and he says as Christ loved the church and there's that phrase again gave herself up but look at the reason to make her holy. He doesn't say I want you to sacrifice for her so you can get something that evening when you you know when the lights go down. He's saying I want you to sacrifice for her to make her holy. This is what Jesus' death on the cross made possible for the church to make her unique and distinct and separate. You say, John, how does that happen? How does when a husband loves his wife in a sacrificial giving way, how does that result in that happening in her life? I'm not sure I fully understand that. Does it give her a sense of value and worth and distinctness? Maybe. But he goes on to use these words, cleansing, washing, presenting, no stain, no wrinkle, no blemish for the purpose of being holy. You know, God talks about this relationship from, between a husband and wife. And he says the best way to figure this out is to look at what I've done. To look at what I've done. You know, in the ancient in that culture, in the, in the culture of the first century, The only obligation, or excuse me, I shouldn't say the only obligation, men had no obligation to their wives. No obligation. Men could do as they pleased. No obligation. Women were obligated to raise children and take care of the home and and be available at their husband's beck and call. So women had this high level of expectation, obligation. For the men, it it didn't even exist. They could literally do whatever they pleased. And Paul came into this picture and he says, He says, guys, he says, I'm going to raise this here, 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 here. Because these scales need to be tipped. Because you need to love the way I have loved and sacrifice the way I have sacrificed. Rather than being guided by his own self-interest, Paul challenges men to be other-centered in their relationship with their wives. And so Paul says, this is the perfect picture. A couple that's devoted to sacrificing and submitting to one another. And I think that's important before you talk about sexuality and marriage to talk about that foundational piece. Because if you don't talk about that foundational piece and then you dive into 1 Corinthians 7, there's a lot of distortion that can come from that. Turn, if you would, back just a few pages in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. It's page 927 in the Bibles the guys passed out. 1 Corinthians 7. And just a quick review, we've been, we've been in 1 Corinthians the last couple weeks. <clears throat> First Corinthians is a situational letter, meaning it's not just in a generic letter to a group of people about this is what following God is all about. It's a situational letter, meaning there was a problem in the church in Corinth. They wrote a letter to Paul. They sent that letter to Paul. Paul's now writing a letter back to them about the situation that happened. But the problem is, is we don't know what the situation is. It's like someone coming to my office and say, "John, can you give me advice about something?" And I say, "Sure, here's my advice." And they write down the advice, and then you happen to see, "Oh, this is what John said. What was the problem? That's what took place here. I suggested last week that it could have been, um, it could have been uh, possible famine, could have been persecution, um, could have been political over. There's a lot of things it could have been we don't really know, but Paul knew that there was trouble on the horizon. Trouble was coming. I looked out the window on Friday afternoon. It had been a really a nice day on Friday. And I saw the storm clouds. And they were coming. They were coming. And that's what Paul knew. And he was telling them about this. And so he says in light of this, in light of the situation, in light of the pending trouble, there's also two other things about this city. It was an oversexualized culture. oversexualized, And there was also a spiritual dualism meaning that they felt they could do anything physically with their bodies and it wouldn't affect their mind and their spirit. So a guy could go have sex with a prostitute in a temple, but as long as he was thinking about God when that occurred, then there wasn't anything wrong with that. And that's the culture that they lived in. It's called dualism. And so Paul, as he's writing to these people about this problem, look back just a couple of verses a uh, couple of chapters in chapter 5 verse 9 he says i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people and then in chapter 6 verse 18 he says flee from sexual immorality there was clearly a problem with sex in that day and so paul he begins in chapter 7 verse 1 by saying now for the matters you wrote me about but you don't know what those matters are it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman so Paul is writing to these people something about a culture that's over-sexual. He says, here's my solution. Avoid sex. That's my solution. Just avoid it. Just avoid it. And you say, what do you mean, Paul? Avoid it always for all time? He, he doesn't tell us anything. And if you forget that this is a situational letter written to a, a specific situation, it is very, Very confusing. Paul's not saying avoid this always for all time, but he's saying in this situation that you're dealing with, it's probably a good idea for you to set this aside. Someone's had a struggle with alcohol. It's become addictive in their lives. And they came and said to me, John, what do you think I should do? I would probably say avoid alcohol. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. Maybe that's what Paul was writing about. Um, But would I say that to everybody? God doesn't say that to everybody. Some people do it by choice. Some people do it out of because of their past. And some people say there's nothing wrong with that on occasion in moderation. Uh, I'll give you another illustration. Some individuals, because of health and nutritional issues, they avoid eating certain things like sugar and gluten. Now, thank goodness God didn't say we should avoid sugar and gluten because donuts would not be around any longer. But, um, you know, but for many of us, we might say, I don't really need to follow those rules. I'm okay having that on occasion. But for some people, it's not for them. And so we don't know the scenario behind this, but Paul's saying, for some of you, avoid it. Avoid it. And then he adds a little bit more to the situation in verse 2. He says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, a sexually promiscuous culture, each man should have sexual relations with his wife and each woman with her own husband. So Paul now modifies this statement, and he says, only have sex with your spouse. Nobody else. Nobody else. And we might think, that's kind of un... Why Why would he say that? But in our culture today, Paul might say the way to avoid this um, is don't view porn. The way to avoid this is be careful about your viewing habits. The way to avoid this is show discernment in your relationships and set appropriate boundaries with men and women you're not married to. But in that culture, in that day, this was the boundary that Paul had established for them. He then goes on in these next couple verses, because what Paul wants people to understand, you could easily read these two verses and say, Paul doesn't really like marriage and Paul doesn't really like sex. You could easily conclude that. But sex was not the problem. It was the misuse of sex that was the problem. And so Paul goes on to talk about This a little bit more in the next couple verses. Look in verse 3. It says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. This verse and the next verse, probably the two of the most misused verses by men in conservative fundamental churches. Um, What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that you have a responsibility to have sex with your spouse. That's what Paul is saying. Sex is to be about your spouse's enjoyment, not yours. Your spouse's. Now some of the guys are thinking that this is the best message they've ever heard. You know, They're going to go put it on repeat and play it when they get home. You know, But Paul is not saying that you can demand this of your spouse. He's not saying you can demand this. It's always to be about the other person's enjoyment. And he says that in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. See, in that culture, it was okay for them to have multiple partners. Even married. Even married. Paul says, no. No. He says, when you say, I do, and you commit yourself to that other person... He says the next step is for you to offer your body to them. But you cannot demand that they do the same to you. You cannot demand that they do the same to you. Your greatest goal should be the delight of your spouse. Because what Paul's trying to help them understand is that giving is, is what this relationship is to be about. Not getting. Giving. Not getting. And what do we hear in the culture? What do we hear in the media? We hear it's all about what you will get. And Paul says, no, it's not about giving. It's not about getting. It's what you give. He goes on in verse 5. And he says this, he says, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Paul's making a hard statement here. It's a hard statement. He says, don't withhold sex from your partner except because you mutually agree. It's hard for me to say that statement say, why is it hard, John? Because I have women who come in my office and they tell me how badly they're being treated. And this is what Paul says. But this is what God says. This isn't what John says. It's what God says. And the reason I want us to look at Ephesians 5 is because the foundation of your relationship has to be sacrifice and submission. That's the foundation of your relationship because if the foundation of your relationship is sex and your foundation of your relationship is what you want and what you hope to get, you've completely missed what God hopes you discover in this wonderful gift that he's offered to you in marriage. What Paul's saying is sex is not to be withheld, used as a manipulation tool, demanded. It's to be a pleasure enjoyed out of submitting and sacrificing to your spouse. He goes on in verse 6 to give another one of those concessions. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Again, Paul's not saying that everybody has to do this. Everybody has to give this up for prayer. He's not saying that. He's saying for some of you, You might need to do this, but I'm not requiring it of everyone. We talk about all the time about spiritual disciplines and and things that we can do in our walk with God to meet God and draw closer to God. Things like reading the scriptures and prayer and, um, and times of solitude and silence. And all of those things are meaningful. And God says, these are opportunities for you to enter into, to meet with God. And Paul says that about this issue. He said this is an opportunity for you as a couple to enter into, to meet with God, say, I'm going to set aside my own personal desires for a window of time just to meet with God as we're seeking His face. For a couple that's having to face a difficult decision, um, not sure what God wants them to do, Paul's saying, this is something that you could consider. But it should be done together. He then closes in verse 7 by saying, I wish that all of you were as I am. I believe Paul was single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. I think what Paul's talking about is, we talked about this last week, that for some people they will have what I believe he's referring to as the gift of staying celibate, the gift of not entering marriage. Um, Some people have that capacity. They come to the place in their life and their journey to say, I'm not going to pursue a relationship because I want to give myself fully to God. And those that do that, they offer that as a gift. But as I said last week, Paul's not requiring that of everyone. He's simply saying, some will choose this. And so there's a couple of truths that come out of this passage. The first truth is the truth of this. You can't have a sexless marriage. You can't have a sexless marriage. Paul says this should be a part of God's design for a couple together. The second thing that I think Paul's saying is you can't demand or force sex. You can't demand or force sex. The reality is this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. It's going to be hard because statistics tell us that after the the honeymoon season that the average couple is sexually intimate one time a week, but the desires surface every three to four days, depending on the partner. And so someone's going to feel a certain degree of frustration in spite of the fact that they have a desire to offer themselves to each other. And it's going to be difficult. you know as i talk about this subject there's a lot of perspectives that you're sitting there thinking about for some of you you hear this word it feels kind of it feels dirty It um, feels like it's something that should be avoided and i would tell you that that's not god's design And you need someone to help you navigate through what's underneath of that in your own heart and mind. For some of you, sex has been held over your head and you felt forced into it and you've almost felt abused instead of loved. And I would say to you, that's not God's design. Some of you, it's become dreaded because of the use of pornography and other sexual objects that have distorted Sexual intimacy, and your partner may have said, This is normal and this is healthy, and we should do this and enhance our relationship. And I would say to you, That's not part of God's design. For some of you, sex is something that you dread in your marriage, and you'd love to just paint Paul's initial statement all over your body it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. That's not God's design. See, God longs for sex to be good and meaningful in the context of a marriage. And if that's not your story, if that's not your experience, God wants something different for you. But you can't deal with these issues on your own. You can't pray your way through these issues. You can't confess your way through these issues because there's something about it. And Paul talks about this a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 7. There's something about the human soul and the human spirit and our sexuality that is so deeply entwined together that when sin is woven into the fabric of that, it's just devastating to who we are. say, what do I do, John? Well, you acknowledge you can't do this on your own and you get some help. There's cards on the back counter of some counselors that um, we support. If you want to talk to someone, you can contact the pastors and we'll connect you with someone that can walk with you in this journey. I had a woman after first service say to me out in the lobby just with, with tears in our eyes, She said, I wish someone would have said to us years ago, you've got to get some help, and here's someone that can help you. It might have saved me a lot of years of pain. And The truth is, and I want to say this very directly to every couple who's married here, um, I don't know how our students... And our young adults are surviving our over-sexualized culture. I just don't know how they are navigating it. I have two kids that are trying to figure this out, and, and we talk about it and try to have conversations about it, and, and, and yet the bombardment that surrounds them is a bit overwhelming for me even as a father to think about I think, how will my kids ever enter a meaningful relationship and experience the blessings that God talks about in the culture and the world that they live in? And then I wonder what they see in their mom and I. And what they see in this area our love for one another and our expression and our sacrifice for one another and our submission to one another. And I think the reality is for many of us, many of us, if we took a step back and said, is there sin in my life that's connected to my sexuality? We would fill of shame say yes. But that's not God's design. And we have to decide if we're going to stop letting Satan win in this area of our lives, our sexuality. Because he's winning, he's winning. He's poisoning of our minds. He's wiping out relationships. He's winning because we haven't recognized there's a battle that's raging inside of us, around us, in all of these areas. Even if you've been sexually pure and, and committed to the person you've given your life to, there's still wrestling and battles of demanding and withholding in that relationship. God says, "Are you willing to make this about sacrifice and submitting to your spouse?" We have to decide if we're going to try to good, if we're going to do battle in this area. And that battle, first of all, begins by recognizing and admitting and saying, God, I've I've blown in some areas. I've sinned in some areas. I've been hiding some stuff that I need to get rid of. I need to get some help to deal with this. And I need to confess things to you. Confess things to my spouse. And I know I'm going to mess up again, but I want a fresh start in this area of my life. I don't want to live with shame and humiliation any longer. We begin our service with a song about grace. What God freely offers to us, no matter what our story is, no matter what our past is, and says, today you can say, today I want to begin anew. And it doesn't mean I'm going to get it right every time and I'm going to fix it every time, but I'm willing to say, God, I recognize I've sinned in some of these areas of my life. not only facing those things, but saying, God, wherever I am right now, I want to commit to moving forward. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion. And I'm going to ask you to bring these struggles to the foot of the cross, where the ground is level. It's all level for all of us the foot of the cross. We bow our knee regularly and say, God, I've sinned. Please forgive me for my sin. And I want to start anew. I want to be reminded of the love that God has for me, the love that Jesus shown for me, a love that's filled with sacrifice, a love that's full of His submission to the Father and willing to do exactly what the Father wanted to do. A love that's willing to give everything up God, I don't know how to love that way. I've never been loved that way, but somehow help me to know your love so I can offer a little taste of that to the people and the person that I love the most on this earth. And then say, God, I want to start new. I want to offer myself again in this area. you may not have any idea what that looks like. You don't have to have it all figured out. God says, "Are you willing to start over and say, God, I want to begin again here?" David said it this way. He said, "God, create in me a pure heart." Pure heart. And I might say it this way, God, give me a heart to love my spouse or the people in my world in a sacrificial, submissive kind of way. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me before we come to the communion table. and.